I am very concerned, deeply concerned, that this will reduce access to care and discourage and negatively impact the research and development of really urgently needed drug therapies for people living with ALS. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. A committee convened by the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review, commonly known as ICER, voted overwhelmingly on August 19th that oral adarivone and AMX35 provide meaningful clinical benefit to people with ALS and that they have a positive impact on quality of life, but that neither drug provides sufficient value to justify the presumed cost to insurers. ICER had presented its analysis, which is based on flawed and discriminatory cost data that we have discussed on this show, to the Midwest Comparative Effectiveness Public Advisory Council, also known as CPAC. CPAC is an advisory committee of 15 health experts that is convened by ICER to hear its evidence. Now that analysis, if approved, could be used by insurers to restrict access to drugs that have already been approved to treat ALS. In response to the CPAC vote, the ALS Association issued the following statement. People living with ALS need new treatments now. We are concerned that the approval of this report will reduce access to care and negatively impact the research and development of urgently needed drug therapies for people living with ALS. The report relies on quality of life data that discriminates against people with disabilities and lacks real-world data on the medical costs of living with ALS in the United States. ICER needs to be more careful about the cost data it uses in its analysis, end quote. Before the committee's votes, Colonit Balas, president and CEO of the ALS Association, Scott Kaufman, chairman of the ALS Association's board of trustees, and ALS advocates Sonny Brouse and Stephen Kowalski addressed the panel. First up was Steve, who was diagnosed with ALS in 2017. Hi, everyone, and thank you for this opportunity. My name is Steve Kowalski. I have no conflict of interest disclosures or updates. I was diagnosed with sporadic ALS in 2017. I'm 58 years old, and I live in Boston, Massachusetts. When I was told I had ALS five years ago, I never thought I'd be here today, let alone still be able to speak and still have the functionality needed to be part of this important discussion. I have three adult children who also live in Boston. Their lives have also been impacted. My mobility is very limited as ALS has affected my lower body. I rely on them for assistance. My ALS may be progressing slowly, but it's still progressing every moment of every day. It feels like I'm slowly being buried alive. At the time I was diagnosed, the FDA-approved IV Radicava, I quickly went on it. I've since transitioned to oral radicava. It is much better in terms of my quality of life and eliminates the risk of port infections. Approximately 12 months ago, based on Amalex's published center trial data and under the care of my neurologist, I decided to compound AMX0035 myself. I've had little or no side effects. I've also been taking Rylazol since 2017. I am convinced it's the combination of these treatments that has slowed my ALS progression. At the end of the day, I'm a guy fighting ALS with every tool available to me to stay alive and function as long as I can. In terms of approved treatments, the current toolbox is severely limited. Speaking of fighting, one thing I've learned is that fighting ALS 
itself is only half the battle. Persons living with ALS fight in so many other ways, whether it's private insurance, Medicare, the FDA, federal and state government health policymakers, right to try, EAP, etc. ALS is a battle fought on multiple fronts. It's a constant struggle to get what we need and deserve just to stay alive. I will not be discriminated against because of a disease that has afflicted me and my family. Innovative treatments that slow or stop progression seem to be the current research pipeline trend. Making ALS a livable disease will only be possible with access to these proven and approved treatments. I'm very proud of the medical and research community and the life science industry here in Boston that focus on ALS. Collectively, it is second to none. As a Boston area organization, I am not as proud of the work ICER has completed in publishing the report we are discussing today, specifically in three key areas. The methodology and cost analysis data is incomplete, especially in comparing a rare, rapidly progressing terminal illness to other livable diseases with more treatment options. I agree with the National Council on Disability, the quality scale is discriminatory and an inadequate understanding and analysis of the heterogeneous complexity of ALS progression and current longer time to diagnosis. As a result, I feel ICER should and can do better. Current legislation pending and recently passed aims to reduce out of control rising prescription drug prices. This is not a disease specific issue, but a pervasive ongoing economic problem in the current United States healthcare system. The ALS community should not be targeted to meet stated objectives to control costs. In my opinion, health economics often get their drug valuation analysis wrong. They're too focused on math that makes dollars the main determinant. Right now, many health economists rely on outdated cost of effective analysis to assess the drug's value and whether it's worth its price. I follow closely and support another Boston-based organization called No Patient Left Behind. They propose an alternative methodology called generalized cost-effective analysis, which asks a broader set of questions that more fully capture the value of a medicine. Two key example questions are, what are the savings over the entire lifespan of the drug when the drug goes generic? Will a drug ease the burden on caregivers with evidence of reducing cost in total care of services? I encourage you and others on this call to review their approach and consider their strategies. Again, that's nopatientleftbehind.org. In closing, I call on ICER to become a better partner in the ALS community. Work with us to determine and formulate a fair, comprehensive analysis of treatments for terminally ill patients like me. Treatments that can bridge a person living with ALS through to the day when a cure for ALS is discovered. I thank you for your time. After Steve spoke, the committee heard from Sonny Browse. Sonny was diagnosed with ALS in 2015. Hello, everyone. My name is Sonny Browse, and I'm excited to share my story with you all today. I'm 35 and live in my tiny hometown of Heiko, Texas. It's important that you know my hometown has less than 1,300 people because it gives depth to the fact that we all had to play every sport so that there were enough to play said sport. It's also important that you know this love for sports 
and hyper-involvement carried me through six years of college and catapulted me into the workforce. I hope that smidge of knowledge about who I am at my core strengthens your understanding of my heartbreak when April 2013, at 26, I could no longer close my glove during the softball game and eventual devastation of diagnosis with the ALS just weeks before my 28th birthday. There are a lot of things to hate about this disease, but in the sake of time and strains on the limits of my positivity, we'll try to keep it brief. Now, I know what you're thinking. She is too young and vibrant to, for a terminal disease. And believe me, I could not agree with you more. That's one of those zero fun serves annoyingly hard to pronounce, and frustrating nuances about ALS, heterogeneity. See, my disease progression is mine mine alone. My ALS doesn't look like Steve or any number of people you know in this community. There is no one-size-fits-all, no equation that balances the symptoms to the lifespan, and no passing go to collect $200. I'm part of a group called Her ALS Story. We are made up of women who were all diagnosed before our 35th birthday. Some members are veterans of this disease, utilizing various forms of adaptive technologies to survive day to day. Some are in what we call their rookie season, learning exactly how much normalcy they're losing with each symptom. And while each of us has an individual story, we all deserve to be reflected in an analysis of the benefits any treatment will have on our lives. We get to determine what major life goals we still want to achieve. I was fortunate enough to start Rodicava months after its approval in the U.S. and remained on the drug through July 2020. After a few peripheral IV rounds without reaction, I had a hot date for some new hardware in my chest to expedite drug delivery. No news is good news with ALS. So within 14-day intervals for numerous months, I endured what I lovingly dubbed Radicava ridiculousness with little noticeable effect. That was the case until I got my first, I got a first-class ambulance ride to the emergency room in a two-star, three-day stay in ICU with sepsis from my port. Months later, we scheduled an additional appointment multiple hours from home to have Paula, my port, removed from my body. It seems obvious to me, but for the sake of covering all the bases, it should be recognized that there is value to the oral drug that is not highlighted in this review, yet can make a big difference in my quality of life. As charming as my rural small hometown is, it's important to know the detriment of having a terminal disease in rural Texas is palpable. 
home health amidst the global pandemic in rural areas is mediocre at best. Rejoining Radhika by ridiculousness through an oral form is a godsend for all parties involved. This is only one of many benefits of access to therapies and the impact on quality of life. Having these different medications as options takes us from a terminal diagnosis to that of a chronic one, which seems like a reasonable and realistic outcome. I truly hope that for my own story, the stories of the women I'm in a group with and the countless unique people with ALS in the U.S., that access to these medications won't be hampered by this review. I leave you today with lyrics from Queen. My soul is painted like wings of butterflies. Fairy tales of yesterday grow but never die. I can find my friends. The show must go on. Thank you for your time. Next up, Scott Kaufman. The ALS Association is the largest philanthropic funder of ALS research in the world and the only organization that provides a wide range of care services in all 50 states to people living with ALS and their families. Charitable contributions from several corporations, including Amelix and Mitsubishi Tanaba Pharma America, help to support our work. The association was also an early grant funder of AMX0035, and these grants included a standard payback provision capped at 150% of our grant. Any funds received as part of this provision will be used to fund new research to find treatments and a cure for ALS. I'm speaking here today on behalf of my son, Stephen, who is living with ALS, as well as for all people living with ALS and their families, friends, and caregivers. Stephen was diagnosed with ALS 10 years ago when he was just 27 years old. Now, many people believe ALS is a disease that strikes older populations, but as you've seen here today, this is not the case. It can strike at any age, even a healthy 27-year-old man. As a parent, I can assure you that it's the worst possible diagnosis you can hear about your child. Stephen, like many others living with ALS, continues to defy the odds and statistics. As you know, those who are diagnosed with ALS on average have a life expectancy of two to five years. Stephen has lived with ALS for 10 years and enjoys a very meaningful life. Three years after he was diagnosed, he married his true love. And then three years after that, Stephen and my daughter-in-law made me a grandfather. And just last year, Stephen was honored by the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame as a superfan. So even at this late stage of the disease, Stephen is a husband, a parent, and a son dedicated to and engaged in his community in so many important ways. On behalf of Stephen and the entire ALS community, I want to clearly state that I agree with the National Council on Disabilities that ICER's methodology discriminates against my son and everyone living with ALS. The methodology, which is flawed in so many ways, will result in a report that will be used by private and public insurers to determine access to new ALS drugs that can extend the quality of life. Its report will be used to decide who gets new ALS drugs and what prior authorization barriers must be overcome. I'm concerned that this report and its recommendations will create more obstacles to accessing treatments that can have a meaningful impact on the lives of people living with ALS now. 
Echoing Dr. Shamaskin's prior commentary, I believe the absence of real-world and U.S.-based caregiving data, data that must be considered in determining the value of these therapies, is a fatal flaw in the ICER report. And because ALS is a neurodegenerative disease, people living with ALS need caregiving support, and that need increases as the disease progresses. New ALS drugs such as AMX0035 and oral Idarovan extend the quality of life for those living with ALS and reduce caregiving costs. This is not reflected in the ISA report, and it should be. Further, I strongly believe that the report will have a chilling effect on ALS research now and in the future. There is a lot of interest and investment in finding treatments for ALS. ICER's negative report on the value of new ALS drugs will discourage new research, harming momentum currently in place to find treatments and a cure for ALS. Research has determined that AMX0035 extends both the length and quality of life for people living with ALS. I want to make it clear that this extension of life could enable someone with ALS to live long enough to benefit from other new drugs that are in the pipeline. So I respectfully request that ICER not finalize a report that uses a methodology that the National Council on Disability has determined to be discriminatory against my son and everyone living with ALS. Thank you. And CPAC also heard from Colony. Let's hear from her now. Good afternoon. My name is Colony Velas, and I'm the president and CEO of the ALS Association. And today I'm speaking on behalf of people living with ALS, their families, and their friends. The ALS Association is the world's largest philanthropic funder of ALS research and the only organization that provides a wide range of care services in all 50 states to people living with ALS and their families. As you've just heard from Scott, the association receives charitable contributions from several corporations, including Amelix and Mitsubishi Tanabe Pharma of America, to help support our work. And so combined between these two companies over several years, that is less than 2% of our annual revenue. The association was a early grant funder of AMX0035 with a standard payback provision that is capped at 150% of our grant, and any funds that we receive as a part of this provision will go to fund new research to find treatments and cures for ALS. The association is working very urgently on behalf of people with ALS and their families to deliver hope in the form of new treatments and cures. Our goal is to make ALS a livable disease. We're committed to ensuring that people with ALS have every opportunity to live their lives fully and enjoy the quality of life and time with their family and their community. To make this happen, we need effective treatments, and we need them to be accessible and affordable. The ALS community has made considerable strides to ensure clinical trials offer evidence of effectiveness that are widely applicable for all people living with ALS. Everyone, including ICER, pays careful attention to the inclusiveness of clinical trials and the quality of evidence. These trials have proven oral Adeveron and AMX0035 are safe and effective therapies that can benefit Americans living with ALS today. Adaravon has been administered, as you know, through the IV for several years by public and private payers. The FDA's approval of oral Adaravon will allow access to more people with ALS with less drug burden, as you just heard from Sunny and from Steve. AMX0035 trial investigators have reported long-term results in publications of post hoc analysis showing larger survival benefits ranging from 10 to 18 months 
and that AMX0035 was effective at reducing harms associated by ALS by half, some such as hospitalizations by 44% and tracheostomies by 49%. Where we strongly disagree with ICER's August report is in the assessment of cost and economic valuation of benefits. Unlike the clinical trial data, the cost data presented are not inclusive or generalizable. They come from foreign sources, from dated sources, and from people who do not have ALS. It's inappropriate to apply cost and burdens of families living with ALS in South Korea or the United Kingdom, which have very different health and long-term care systems to Americans living with ALS. It's also inappropriate to determine the value of life for people who suffer serious disability by surveys of people who know nothing of ALS or its challenges and has been found by the, as you know, by the National Council of Disabilities to be discriminatory. Those data are simply not inclusive, not generalizable to the Americans with ALS that you're hearing about today. The scientific community takes great pains to scrutinize clinical trials before generalizing it to broader populations. The same care must be taken for the economic data as well. I ask each of you on this council to do the same. Are cost data and quality data used in these models generalizable to the Americans living with ALS? I think the answer is no. Do these data meet the standards of inclusion and power you expect from data on clinical benefit? Again, the answer seems to be no. These aren't abstract questions. The ICE report ignores the quality of cost data and makes recommendations on pricing and relative benefit. And yet, we know that insurers control spending not only through price negotiation, but also through administrative restrictions. Like Scott, I am very concerned, deeply concerned, that this will reduce access to care and discourage and negatively impact the research and development of really urgently needed drug therapies for people living with ALS. I'm also very concerned that this report will make it harder for people with ALS to access FDA-approved treatments prescribed by their physicians. Members of the council, thank you so much for having me here today. I know you are here because you wanna see integrity in drug pricing and better access to effective care for everyone. I urge you to bring that integrity to this process and apply the same rigor and cost data that has been applied to the clinical data. When you review the inclusiveness and the quality of the cost data, I ask you to join me in asking ICER not to publish this report. Thank you so much. If you like this week's episode, please share it with a friend. And while you're at it, rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Alex Brower. Production management by Gabriella Montekin, supervised by David Hoffman. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. We'll connect again soon.